Hello, everyone out there. This is uh, Rachel and Matt coming to you from Melbourne, Australia, still in lockdown, unfortunately. And thank you for joining us for another episode of When Movies Were Good. Matt, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm good. All the better to be podcasting with you, my dear. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's um, we still have to do the show remotely. Uh, we still get over Skype. I think there's a few issues on my end with the internet just from where I access it from. So as always in advance, we apologise. We look forward to when we can get back doing a pure audio stream. Sounds a lot better, works a lot better. So we appreciate your patience. Um, we are doing a Gary Cooper double a discussion about some Gary Cooper films that are very well known to all classic movie audiences. We're doing 1952's High Noon and uh, the 1956 Friendly Persuasion, which stars not only Gary Cooper, but one of my favourite people of all time, Anthony Perkins. So we normally just start by, I think the audience is very familiar with Gary Cooper. He really is one of the giants of American cinema, of American classic cinema. He was someone like most um, classic movie actors had different incarnations doing different types of jobs before winding up in the music in the music sorry in the movie business in the 1920s and he started in sort of silent pictures pre-code and then just um, went on for pretty much the rest of his life right up until he died uh, as someone that made a lot of films and is highly loved highly regarded and highly remembered so these are two of his most well-known films so what was – did you enjoy this double this week, Matt, or? I did. Uh, so I'd um, seen High Noon a while back, and so I enjoyed seeing it again because it, it is an unusual film in that it's edited in almost real time. And they have quite similar qualities because they're kind of – they have hints of the qualities that you associate with Western movies, but they're not really Westerns, and they – not that it's uh, necessarily the key focus, I think, but they seem to look at both look at a bit of um, sort of the Quaker ideal ideology. Although it's not really about the Quaker religion, it's more a case of putting pacifism against um, pro-war elements, and so creating these kind of adaptable storylines. And I yeah, think they were quite absorbing. Yeah, I didn't actually realise there were a few things that the films had in common, some of the themes in the films. So if we start with 1952's High Noon, um, so the basic plot of the film is that uh, Marshall Will Kane, played by Gary Cooper, is about to leave his small town in New Mexico with his new wife and younger wife, uh, Amy, played by Grace Cap Kelly. So the local bad guy, Frank Miller, is coming back to the town to exact his revenge and as members of the town seem to take the easy way out, they don't, after much confrontation with Gary Cooper and the rest of the town, Kane ultimately has to face Miller and his henchmen alone. So that's kind of the basic plot of the film. So that leads us to what High Noon is, because that's the time when Miller is actually going to be in the town and this confrontation is going to take place. So directed by Fred Noon who did From Here to Eternity, as well as some many other well-known films, starring Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, a young Lloyd Bridges, who I didn't realise was in the film, Lee Van Cleef, who I didn't realise was in this film, who didn't actually speak any lines, and Lon Chaney Jr. So there was a really interesting mix of people in there. And it was by Carl Gorman, 
who had a lot of writing credits to his history, but he was also someone that was targeted in the House of American Activities um, during that period where the communism scare was going on in the 1950s. And both of these films had a little bit to do with that due to the writers that worked on them because they were targeted by this commission. So, Matt, they, I was reading that some people didn't want to be involved with this because other people were thought to take this role on other than Gary Cooper. Um, Charlton Heston, a few other people apparently had turned the role down or had looked at doing the role, but they didn't want to do it because of perhaps what it was, um, the allegory of it um, being something to do with duty and desire, but also to do with them taking on the enemy which a lot of people thought was to do with this group of people that were targeting the communists, so to speak. So what what do you think about the storyline of High Noon? How, did you like it? Was it your cup of tea? Well, I thought it was uh, – I, I had a little trouble um, uh, putting it together in my mind, uh, the uh, associations of the allegory to do with McCarthyism. Uh, when you compare – other stories like The Crucible, which are much more, which were also allegories of the McCarthy period, you can find the association much more readily. But I th- definitely, uh, I, I loved how tight the, the storyline, it, it sort of didn't linger. It, re- it really pushed forward the, with the rapid um, uh, crises that... Um, uh, a man would have in um, gaining help like that for a dangerous cause. And even though it's not a typical Western uh, in terms of like uh, lots of major shootouts and uh, uh, confrontations with uh, uh, in open fields, you uh, do get an idea of how this was a time when you couldn't... Uh, rely on a big local police force to always be taking care of everything. There was a much more hands-on approach to uh, approach approach to law enforcement. And even though we know well, especially now, that a lot of the Wild West, West has been mythologized in terms of what it was like, one thing that you could be sure of is that uh, it was a, you could far rely on a government far less for your own protection. Yeah, that's right, because essentially there was the one lawman town and I think the way they had it set up in those days was that he had deputies who would sort of volunteer their their position, so to speak, when he needed them. And in this story, no one would volunteer once they sort of realised that it was it perhaps might turn into be a bloodbath. What did you think of Grace Kelly in this film? I just thought she was... Either he was too old or she was too young. Apparently in the original uh, book or storyline, he's supposed to be about 30 years old, the Will Kane. But, of course, Gary Cooper was in his early 50s at that point. So either they needed to perhaps maybe have a little thing in the storyline at the start at their marriage because the the show, I was reading that in the real time, as you said, the film period, it's 85 minutes long. Yeah. The film period is slightly longer. It's about 10.30 a.m. to about quarter past 12. So it is sort of a sequence of events shot fairly closely in real time, but the real period was just a bit, a little bit longer than that. Um, so, yeah, because what a wedding day. I mean, <laughs> you know, you sort of wake up in the morning, get married, and then 
All hell breaks yeah. loose. Um, but but it, it kind of seems like you're not wasting time, though. What's that? Sorry? It kind of means like you're not wasting time, though. I mean, yo, you yeah, you get the, yes, you get the lovey-dovey stuff out of the way. You 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 get to the you get to the part straight away where she's literally saying, "Okay, we've just got married, but I'll abandon you anyway if you uh, try and shoot uh, or try and um defend your township." Yeah, that's right. Um, I really, I'm not so sure I was really into that part of the storyline, but I did like the whole clicking top, uh, clicking top, the clock ticking and getting towards high noon and building up the the drama that way and him going to the various members of the town and there were petty squabbles about other things that happened. So I did like, I really liked that element, really liked the running time, a shorter movie is a bit more what I'm interested in. I just thought Grace Kelly was just a bit too young. Maybe it would have been good to have, it was their second marriage, maybe both of them were widowers. But so then that back then people did get married ridiculously young. They did. I just think because Gary Cooper was 50 and he kind of looked around 50 um, and she kind of looked around her early 20s, she was, it just was yeah. too much for me. I don't know whether if they could have put, if they were really, I, I, I don't know, either maybe go for someone a bit younger or a bit of an older actress and explain what? that perhaps both of them were marrying for the second time because they were widowers or something. I'm not sure, but, yeah. Well, well this is still uh, like um, Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo when he was quite old to his leading lady, and this was a time when I think they still had the remnants of the star system and quite often for a director and the producers it would mean more to them to have a big name like Gary Cooper or G Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant as the leading male and they have to play that sort of um, uh, boy meets girl narrative, even if it doesn't um, quite match logically with age. And, like, you can get away with that more in operas. You can have Placido Domingo play a 70-year-old, yeah. a, a player lover in his 70s, but you can't get away with that so much when you're up close to them with a 35-millimeter lens. Uh, yeah, that's right, and you're right about that. Yeah, yeah, I always thought that watching Vertigo, I just thought James Stewart just seemed far too old for Kim Novak for them to be playing in a sort of romantic sense opposite each other. I felt that about Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint as well. Well, you know that in Vertigo. Well, you know that in Vertigo, actually, Hitchcock took to his gravest secret, which um, Francois Truffaut, the French film critic he did a major interview with, only said after. Hitchcock died that in secret um, he did blame that Vertigo, it's only. It was only a moderate success at the box office at the time, and mm. he blamed a lot of that on how old Jimmy Stewart looked. Yeah, I... I, I Mind you, I he actually, did cast him in the uh, first place. Yeah, he did. And, uh, yeah, and, and you're, you're right about that. And even now, sometimes you see it on and the actor's still a fair bit older than the woman and, and all the rest of it. So not, not so much anymore, but um, I just... For me, it just kind of took it away. But I did like the other people in the film. It, the film was very tight. I loved the musical endings to the film. Um, what was the name of the song? Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which I actually apparently that became quite a well-known pop song at the time as well. Really loved all that sort of stuff. I was a bit disappointed with the end of the film. I just was a bit corny. But... You know, it is what it is. It worked for what it was trying to do. So I did I did like the film. I didn't love, love it, but I liked the pace of the film. I liked the idea of the film. It's just some elements didn't come together for me. What was your ultimate thoughts on it? 
perhaps the main thing I had an issue with, and this might be uh, because I recently edited a short film for a competition, so perhaps I, because I've just been spending so much at a computer editing my own little film, I've become sensitive to it, but I, I found a, a few sections uh, throughout the film, uh, the editing was a bit rough, and it's I, uh, like uh, they'd sort of uh, cut over a, a bit too fast from a actor moving and so forth and this is ironic because it actually won an oscar for its editing um yeah, yeah. and my guess is that was probably more for the editing in the intense scenes in the bar and the fight and not so much a some of the more uh, uh, out of sync spots that i noticed um in the beginning and middle uh like you said the ending it it seemed a bit um strange that uh kelly uh suddenly does pull the trigger and like the plot needed that to happen but i, I feel like they could have built up better to, better to us uh yeah. i uh, it's uh it is very narrowly cut so i don't know if maybe it was perhaps uh envisioned to be a bit longer with some of those details filled out it did give the vibe that it, somebody was probably pressuring for it to be edited down to the bare bone yeah, and I think I was also researching that there was a few issues with the cinematography as well, with the with the black and white, the use of probably things more that you would understand than me, but there was some controversies on the film. So I think the editing and the cinematography as well, but ultimately the audience liked it. Um, Gary Cooper won an Academy Award for it. And it's just, it's that real archetypal hero going up against it. So, I mean, for that alone, it's an entertaining film to watch. I think everyone who was in it did what they could. Um, I think it was more just Kelly and Cooper. I think the age difference was a bit much there. I would have liked to be the same. Him paired up maybe with a widower who was a bit older with him or maybe just had cast the role to a younger person. But then again, I can't really imagine after seeing it anyone else but Gary Cooper doing that role. It's, it was so weird seeing Grace Kelly appear so far back in the credits. I mean, like, I think they went through two or three pages of names before they got to her. I'm like, wow, this was yeah. really early for her. Yeah, no, that like, was, she's not in big letters at the front. Yeah, that was, I think, her first film. She was sort of discovered while she was working on Broadway. And she'd come from a quite a well-to-do family and everything. So I guess her being an actress, I'm not, I'll have yeah, to sort I, of reread that. I thought that 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 she was quite a lucky girl. Yeah, she was. <laughs> She she was, um, you know, whether she made the right decision going over into the royal family of Monaco is another story. But, uh, you know, for the films that she did make, she was really the epitome of the era of the classic, cool, beautiful blondes. You know, obviously, Alfred Hitchcock loved her. But now that we come to think of that, I actually think her and Ray Milland as well. I know, you know, obviously what happened off the set with them but that, again, he seemed a little bit old for her as well. I mean, wouldn't worry me. It wasn't as old, I think, in comparison. Um, or, no, wait, he was acting in the 30s, so I guess it could have been a similar age difference with Gary Cooper. Yes. And, uh, yes. All due respect to Gary Cooper, probably he aged slightly more than he did, than Ray did. Yeah, I think Ray and Gary Cooper were of the same age because they were in Bogues together uh, back in the 1930s, which I'm, I really want to see Bogues. So, um, they're, yeah, they were of the same age, uh, Ray or thereabouts. Ray was a lot longer lived than because mm. he lived well into the 80s and Gary died when he was 60, so uh, in, in 1960 or so from a heart attack, I believe. 
So we'll move on to our second Gary film. So this one is one I said last week or the last time we discussed movies together. That one that I wanted to see for many years because Anthony Perkins is in it, and that's Friendly Persuasion, 1966. Yep. Well, Matt, we'll just give the audience just a quick outline of the plot. So a Quaker family, so that's the Quakers, um, not indigenous to the to the North America. They're found all over the world, but it's sort of a religious movement with certain values and ideals, not sort of as harsh maybe as the Amish community. Um, there's the Mennonites and a few other sort of religious communities, and they all sort of sort of seem to fit into a general area some of the um, things that they do in their life that are probably different than what you and I would do. But a Quaker family lives and learns and tries to maintain their lifestyle mid the start of the Civil War. And that's really what the movie is. So I, was, I wasn't actually sure what I was watching. I was watching Friendly Persuasion because it's, um, it's, there's a lot of themes in the film and there's a lot of, you know, little like subplots and this and that but no yeah. big massive storyline and then at the end a bunch of things happen and then it's sort of it is more of a moral story than a plot story would you agree with that Matt or yeah I mean honestly I think the th probably the first third of the film where it was seemed to be more just a transfer William Wyler to do some of his um Hollywood um humor it could have probably been there a bit uh, more tightly down i think uh perhaps one thing because a lot of people who may not be familiar with quakerism particularly outside of america uh, one of the big things about that religion is that they are harshly like hardcore pacifist and i yeah. believe it goes so far as to say to that um a lot of governments or at least in america for a long time and maybe now as well um are often given uh, exemptions from war drafts. At, what's interesting is that Richard Nixon, the U.S. president, mm. he was, uh, his yes. family was Quaker, and yep. he, if he wanted to, he could have uh, got a, gotten out of serving in World War II because he was a Quaker, but he uh, chose to go, um, now whether that was for patriotic or future political reasons, he always had an agenda, uh, mm. but that's an interesting side note. But I think that's a... One of the core things is that the Quakers are a very strong force for um, peace movements. And even though at the moment they only have like about half a million members, which when you compare to a, something like Catholicism, which has one billion, is not a lot. But they, from what I understand, uh, because I've heard a couple of speeches by uh, historians in America and uh, their influence in a lot of international politics is far beyond their numbers. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a really interesting sort of information that you gave everyone. It's, uh, yeah, so basically that's the thrust of the film. So it was directed by a very well-known William Weiler. So he was a Swiss-German who came over, obviously, to be a part of the movie industry as well. He's known for the Roman Holiday, as Matt said, Ben Hur, so some massively successful films he was a part of. Um, so, of course, starring Gary Cooper, Dorothy Maguire, who I liked in a film I saw when I was much younger, Gentleman's Agreement with um, Gregory Peck. I always remembered her from that film and, and liked her. The great Anthony Perkins. And, oh, oh my God, Matt, I was sitting there. Yeah. The, the, the gentleman that was the, um, in, the, in the army, the guard, 
who was interested in the daughter in the film. I was like, where do I know that guy from? I'm like, oh, my God. It's Peter Mark Richmond from Santa Barbara. Yet another classic film actor who ended up in 80s soaps. Yeah, your um, knowledge of um, 80s soaps astounds me. <laughs> I, mean, I saw the face. I saw the face and I went, oh, my God, is that Peter Mark Richmond? And it was. And he also was in Friday the 13th Part 8 and was stuffed into a toxic bin by Jason Voorhees. I mean, what a way to finish off your career. I mean, you know, I think actually I want to say that Peter Mark Richmond is a very, very, very old man who's still with us, but I'm sure he must have. Yeah. Well, we will have to look that up. But the last time I checked, he was, but that was a while ago. But I was like, oh, this is hilarious. They were all, um, Anthony, that was his second film that he did after The Actress with Gene Simmons. And then pretty much after that, he moved away from the stage and started his quickly slow build up to Psycho, which actually was not that many years later. It was four, three years later, I think. Well, I've not seen many of um, Perkins' um, early uh, roles before Psycho, but uh, this does give an idea of the very homely character that he was associated with. And you can uh, tell why um, Hitchcock, who liked casting against type, would have wanted someone like Perkins, who was um, uh, perfect for a story that was kind of all about the the sort of um, snap behind the snap in the mind behind the exterior of um, the perfect American uh, person. Yeah, well, he he sort of um, about that time he began his you know, he had very many different phases of his career. I mean, when you see the last set of films that he did and compare it to some of the classic movies, wow, we're talking some really 80s out there stuff. But um, he then did Tall Story with Jane Fonda. He did Tin Star. He did a few other films. And then we're getting up to Psycho. Then he still did them what would be considered classic films after Psycho, and then he got into the psychedelic stuff in the 70s. But it was really when he played Norman Bates again in Psycho 2 in 82, that's pretty much when his career went over into that side of, yeah, I'm playing the crazy guy in the film, and, and that was the end of it. But it was great to see him in this film, bringing it back to friendly persuasion. If anything, he wasn't in it enough for me. I liked Gary Cooper in this film. Um, I, thought he did it, I thought he did a reasonable job with the material. The film was just, I get the thing, they're pacifists and it's to fight or not to fight because all of them, well, the, the, the father, the mother and the Anthony Perkins character, they all have that decision to make. And, in fact, they all kind of go against what the Quaker religion says to do. The mother beats the guy up when he touches the goose. She really goes for it. Anthony Perkins, their characters have their own when the army approaches and everything they get involved in. So that yeah. part was good. Yeah, probably the best example of um, the the noble um, pacifist is when G- Gary Cooper forces a gun off the Confederate soldier and tells him to go. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yes, I mean, I haven't seen a greater act of mercy since Mr Miyagi let the evil karate <laughs> teacher go off. Yeah. Uh, is that in part two when he's about to, like, chop him at the window and stuff? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's sort of crossover. I think they sort of recreate the same scene in The Changeover or something. I haven't seen it in the yeah. Karate Kid in years. 
Yeah, yeah. It's. I think he does that um, at the start of part two. So it's, it's a direct continuation on from the first film. So they kind of merge together a little bit. But yes, I I agree. I just like it was sort of interesting, like the internal issues that the family had like the father loved music he wanted to have an instrument uh, the mother was like no she was really but then when push came to shove when something that was important to her was being manhandled you know she went for it so in all their you know own ways they all had to grapple with that so it's a nice moral story and the, the ending part which kind of comes a little bit out of nowhere I sort of enjoyed but uh uh, just overall, it was a, maybe a little bit long for me, of course, um, and I just wish maybe something had started a bit earlier in the film to build it up a bit more. It's It was kind of strange at the end uh, because it's kind of ironic that um, you have this big war story and yet the whole major cast uh, is still alive at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I'm happy for them and all, but I'm kind of like, okay, um. I'm certain there's a film class teacher that's very disappointed with how they wrote the plot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of um, but you know sometimes it like yeah, it's sort of a, it's a hard thing to. There was obviously something they were going for in the film, and if you got it, you got it. If you didn't, then you know. Whereas High Noon, it was all about that High Noon, you know. So that was a big contrast in the films. One was a bit sort of meandering and there was some life stories and lots of character tidbits and stuff. And then the other one was like high noon, you know? So it was it's two actually interesting films of his to compare because they were yeah. similar in some ways with the theme, but very different in the approach to the film. Both of the films were shot on movie ranches in, in California. Um, Friendly Persuasion was set in Indiana and, the first film, High was set in New Mexico, but I suppose California can double for anywhere, especially back then when it was so not settled the way it is now. And there then was Matt, one major difference I could pick out between both those yeah. films. Yes, what was it? Budget. <laughs> yes. It, even even the like the aspect ratio of High Noon, it's like almost television screen size. Uh, yes, I knew you'd I, probably pick up on something like that. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at it and I'm thinking, did they use a home movie camera or something? Yeah. I think they have. I think I was reading, and I might put some articles up on our Facebook page about it, but uh, that they said that that was a few issues that film critics looking back on the film had with it. But I suppose a layperson like me, I, I probably wouldn't see that too much, but for someone like you that um, is a photographer and has a knowledge of cinematography and stuff. That's yeah. something that you pick up on straight away. But I did I, like I, the little. I mean, there. that's a background. Oh, go ahead. I was saying that's a background detail. I mean, it's like David Oselsnick said: um, a, a, a double size screen just makes a bad film twice as bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and I, I didn't think either film was um, a bad or anything like that. Just things I really liked about both films, but on a whole, some elements didn't work for me. And that's probably why I'd give them sort of a, you know, maybe a B, B grade, just because there were a few elements in the films that were missed for me, not necessarily I, anything I think bad. Friendly, yeah, I think Friendly Persuasion, a lot of people might have uh, trouble relating to um, at, at certain points, just because it's come so far from the sort of high moral periods of the Victorian era when, uh, something uh, like sitting on an armchair before uh, 
before dinner time was considered slovenly and women meticulously uh, kept doing crochet uh, during every time because they regarded a, a moment of idleness as a, a chance for the devil to get into their mind, which was quite often a, a thing in a lot of the really strict Protestant communities in a lot of rural America. So a lot of the sort of uh, moral conflicts that uh, the plot alludes to, uh, which uh, probably the many of the writers would have had clear memories in their head of older people um, they knew who were like that. But it's a, I think probably uh, it's one of those um, uh, extra layers of meaning that uh, a lot of modern modern audiences might need to sort of practice and get into the headspace to understand fully. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still worthwhile watching Friendly Persuasion and um, High Noon if you're sort of interested in, in the country uh, cowboy sort of genre, even things going into the spaghetti west. Oh, and stuff definitely. definitely I'm, just, I'm just saying that film, it's a uh, weird we're getting we're like two decades into the 21st century now and film has been around long enough that, enough that it's almost becoming like uh looking at different movements of art from the renaissance or antiquities from egypt and you have to at times understand the culture that made it a lot better whereas um that wasn't necessarily um thought of as much even up to maybe even just 20 or 30 years ago yeah that's right and I think the nice little sort of story that I did hear about Friendly Persuasion or when I was reading about the film was that President Reagan gave the gift of the movie to President Gorbachev of the USSR to show that there can be peace through strength, which was a big motif of President Reagan's. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Understand a lot of big Russian leaders like Stalin and stuff, they love their cowboy films. Yes, well, yeah, this is true. Even though, um, even though High Noon is more about the marshal, Although I do find it funny that in a lot of westerns that are supposed to be set around cowboys, and I'm thinking they never seem to actually get around to handling any cattle during the movie. Yeah. Well, that's, well, you know, to sort of briefly go back to the 80s super soaps, that's why Alice was so successful because it was set in Texas and they lived on this big ranch and everyone was wearing these hats and, you know, and it was just something, it's like a fantasy sort of scenario where they lived and how they played and what they the cow everything that was going on out there and this sort of rich misery that they had so that we have that now uh, it's called the bachelor yeah oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well this one's been a fun one i did um it was good to finally see these two movies and thanks for for coming and chatting tonight, Matt. Much appreciated as always. Uh, and thank you also to anyone that, that listens to us. We are trying to sort of work on our production and as uh, soon as we physically can get together again, hopefully things will, will have a bit of an uptick there and we can bring you a better sounding product. So we're going to do for our audience, just to let you know for next week uh, or the next discussion that we have on when movies were good, we're going to be doing a Burt Lancaster double. And I just sort of came sort of looking through some films today and uh, I thought I suggested to Matt maybe we can do the Burt Lancaster film. So we're going to do that for our next one. So we're going to yep. do 1953's Here to Eternity. And how I got that in my head was because he now, I'm not sure I don't get this wrong, he directed High Noon. So that's where I'm researching Fred Zinnemann who directed High Noon. I was like, oh, from Here to Eternity. I've never seen it. I'd like to see it. Got a great cast, Montgomery Cliff, someone Matt and I love. Uh, yep. And and some other very well-known people.
So, um, yeah, I thought maybe that would be an interesting double to do. So there's just so many films we could choose. So it's almost trying to, like, nail them down, which ones. So that should be a fun one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't um, seen much of Burt Lancaster. Neither, neither have I. I always had seen him, the name, all the time. And, you know, it was sort of like... Um, James Dean. I've never actually sat down and physically physically watched a lot of his films, if any. So yeah. it should be a good one. And we, we thank you for joining us uh, tonight. And, um, Matt, do you want to just remind people the social media that we've got going on at the moment? Yes, that's right. So, uh, as always, for our YouTube channel itself, you can hit subscribe and tap the bell to be notified of uh, when our episodes are released. We bring out one every two weeks. We plan on having a pure audio stream as well as soon as we can be physically together and we can actually make a audio track that's of a sufficient quality to be put as a pure audio stream. Uh, but until then, we're still here on YouTube. And you can also check out our videos on Instagram and Facebook where we have both introduce our episodes, but we also release uh, extracurricular material now and then, which uh, if you're anything like us, you'll um, love reading late into the night. Yeah, I, we definitely intend on um, putting more stuff like that. It's, uh, you know, every everyone's all over the place at the moment, but it's good to focus on things that you enjoy. So thanks, everyone, for checking in with us again this week. In the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're Watch Good Movies, and we'll see you on the next one. Take care, guys.